should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Welcome to Wednesday and it's uh, hump day. I haven't said that in a while, so I'm very happy to be able to say that um, here on this show so I'm excited to play for you a few, or I should say a couple interviews. And these interviews I conducted for the television show, actually. But usually what happens with the television show is that we only play about 6 to 12 minutes of the interview. And so the entire thing doesn't actually get aired. Uh, so the producers were kind enough to send me the entire file, the audio file of the interview um, that I did just the other day. So two guests today uh, that I did the interview for the television show are Rodessa Jones. She's the co-artistic director of Cultural Odyssey and also the director of the Medea Project. And the Medea Project is theater for incarcerated women. And so Rodessa is very well known in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's been doing this kind of work for over 30 years. She's also a singer. She's also a dancer and, and lots of many titles. So I think we should just jump into the interview and listen to the entire thing. We won't even interrupt it uh, for a commercial break until after the interview. So enjoy this interview with Rodessa Jones. Rodessa, what an honor to have you here in studio with me. Well, thank you for having me, and good morning. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're doing this really early in the morning. So, you know, anyone who's Googled you or have heard of you know about the many accolades and achievements and awards from the work that you do throughout your career, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, but I'd love for anyone tuning in, especially those who are introduced to you for the first time tonight, to, to get to know you. Tell us. Mm -hmm. Tell us something about yourself. Maybe, you know, where did you grow up? And Well, one of, the, one of the things I find most interesting as I get older, I'm a migrant child. My mother and father were migrant workers. And that was my first uh, information about California was my mother and father. Living on the East Coast, they were always dreaming of coming to Fresno, California to work in the fields. And, uh, but I was born in Florida. My parents moved to upstate New York because my mother wanted us to have a better life, a better education than they had. Uh, we left a beautiful home in Florida, the house where all of us were born, and ended up living in upstate New York, uh, in Wayland, New York. In fact, I'm going to my 50th high school universe, uh, reunion uh, like next month. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I am a mother. I was a mother before I was a woman. I had a baby at 16. My daughter is now 51, and my granddaughter is 27. And I, all of this has to do with my arriving here at the studio talking about the Medea Project Theater for Incarcerated Women, because I think it was, I think it, I think I carved a path 
uh, that, that led me into the jails to sort of make sense of what it is to be a woman in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. What is it is to be uh, an African-American woman in the 21st century? What is it to be an activist? What is it to, uh, to share with women what I know? And I say to everybody, theater saved my life. I'm an actress. I'm a dancer. I'm a writer. I'm a director. But I'm also a grandmother, and I'm a daughter, and I, and I am a mother. And all of these things are part, as we were saying off the air, that women have arrived, and, and uh, women are a very different kind of creature. But I'm, I, I love women. I think that, uh, and it's not even just to lie with, but it's like the magic of women, the, 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 uh, the alchemy. I mean, I'm working in the jails. I've been in jail. I've been in the jails, and there's like a semi-lockdown at, at the county jail, and nobody's allowed to talk. And when women are not allowed to talk, books fly off the shelves. Pictures fall off the wall. Chairs fall over. Uh, the earth magic we carry. We mm -hmm. carry. And, I, and I'm a healer. And uh, I've lived in San Francisco for almost 50 years now. Wow. wow. Yes. Uh, uh, and theater saved my life, which yes. is um, why I, I think I, uh, I was able to harness it and take it into the jails around the world, because I work around the world. I work everywhere, yeah. Let's get into that. Something so powerful, you know, mm -hmm. you say behind that theater saved my life. Mm -hmm. I think art um, and being able to express yourself artistically can, it is healing for yes. a lot of us. Um, let's apply that to the incarceration of women uh, and the programs that you work with. You know, what exactly did lead you to create the Medea Project, and how <laughs> has it healed women who have been incarcerated? Well, my mother used to say, uh, if you're going to walk in the light, you better walk right, because you don't know who's watching. And I got a call from the California Arts Council many years ago asking me would I go into the jails and teach aerobics to incarcerated women. And I was, I was fascinated aerobics and with, with the, I'm thinking Jane Fonda, you know, I'm going to take this into the jails. And at the same time, I wasn't aware that there were so many women in lockdown. We're talking the early, early 80s. And uh, what I found that has always worked, being that I'm an actress, is giving voice to women who have never had voice. That's the thing about my work inside of the jails is like, giving women a space to, to say out loud, this happened to me, or this hurt me, or uh, I can sing. I want to be able to say to my children, explain to my children where I am. And this is what we do in the theater process inside the jails, is get women to simply uh, have a good time exposing yourself, mm -hmm. you know, uh, claim everything. And so um, I think that my own journey as an African-American girl who had a baby, I mean, I got pregnant at 15, I had a baby at 16, and the, um, the sadness in my mother's eyes. My mother, my mother had 19 pregnancies, and 12 of us lived, and she was a Christian woman. Mm -hmm. So she didn't emphasize it, but I knew she was hoping that our lives would be a bit different. You know, she, she understood that if God gives you all these children, then you, you're supposed to take it. But towards the end of her life, she really, she confessed to me that she only had wanted two children. She wanted to be a nurse. And uh, she ended up with so many children. She told me she hated to cook. She said, I hated to cook, but I had to feed all of you children. And my father was there. My father was a, a good guy, but he was demanding. You know, I'm not going to romanticize 
him in, in that sense that he expected her to do wifely things. So her own dreams were put to the side, you know. Mm. And, and with the incarcerated woman, so much of what gets them in trouble is that they're amazing dreamers. They're amazing schemers. They're, they're, they, are, they are quintessential bullshit artists, you know. <laughs> and it's like, uh, and you bring all that to the center, though. Everybody loved Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, the song. And I would say, let's just move to it. Let's just, let's just move to it. And people would start crying. Mm -hmm. And I say, what is it? They say, well, you just don't understand. I said, well, make me understand. Mm -hmm. Make me understand with movement. Make me understand with voice. Tell me what, what is Marvin saying to you? And they say, well, can't you hear it? Everybody's asking it. And we were all asking it. What is going on? Because when I went into the jails, women had just started to go to jail in such amazing numbers. And it had a lot to do with crack cocaine, of course and prostitution, but a lot of it had to do with being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I met a young woman in the jails who had been, she, she was at Grambling in Louisiana, the school, came home for Easter uh, weekend, Easter holiday. Uh, her brother says, go over uh, to this lifelong friend and pick up this package for me. She had no idea what it was. Mm -hmm. She goes over, she pick, picks up this package. She's kicking it with this guy that they went to school with, Bataram time, boom, the police come in. She's taken off to jail because in her purse, she has cocaine, a lot of cocaine in a large envelope. She didn't know. She didn't, she had no idea, but she had been there. She had the drugs and they were like, yeah, right. And then I had a girl from England, a black girl from England who came to San Francisco looking for her uncle because someone in, in England was dying and they said, go get this man, let him know what's happening. So she's this beautiful young black girl, Sade type, you know, and she's in the, uh, South of Market. This is like oh, uh, 1981 or so. And she's, uh, she gets caught up in a sweep. Mm -hmm. All the whores are like, you know, fire in the hole, fire in the hole, because that's the cold on the street. Right. And she's like looking and women are running and the police pick her up because she said, I was looking for my uncle. And they said, oh, that's what we're calling it now. Right. They really, you know, and here she was. I met her in jail. She had no idea about the process in America, about being in lockdown, and she'd been there two weeks when I met her. Let's yeah. talk about that. The process, the system, the reasons, you know, yeah. people are incarcerated and the, the, the people in general who are incarcerated. When mm -hmm. you look at the demographic or the makeup, the composition of those who are incarcerated, I, I would love to hear from your perspective, having worked in the system itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, are the numbers that alarming of people who are actually committing incredibly violent crimes that they are deserving of, of being in no. that system? No, a, a lot of people in jail because they are poor. You know, if you get, uh, you know, uh, with enough traffic tickets and depending on your neighborhood, your community, you can be picked up and taken to jail. Uh, now, I'm not going to say that, the, as Richard Pryor would, would say, some people should be in jail. Mm -hmm. Now, because when I was uh, uh, intensely involved downtown about seven years ago, I don't go in as much because I don't have any room because there's mm -hmm. so many people in jail that I can't bring in my company. And we used to have a great spot at uh, 850 Bryant Street. But, every, but everything is covered with beds because there's so many people being locked up as well as they're trying to bring women back to their community, you know, versus you're being in Chowchilla for drug possession. 
they're trying to bring you back to San Francisco so you so you can see your children, you can see your mother. Yeah. Uh, and because of that, the arts suffer. We don't, excuse me, we don't have the room to be in the jails at all times. But no, to answer your question, uh, no, the, it isn't. It's people are not incarcerated for such. Mm -hmm. Uh, horrendous crimes all the time. Mm -hmm. It's largely uh, black and brown mm -hmm. people. Thank you. Thank yes. you so much for that. I feel vindicated in some ways <laughs> in the conversations we've had. I could talk to you all day long and I, and, uh, I would really love to speak to you again. But I want to move on to okay. the part where you also work with uh, the HIV AIDS community. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about that and the decision to do so and uh, providing a platform and mm. and a way out to relive again for those who have been infected. Well, it's the same profile in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. You know, the the, the incarcerated woman, uh, especially when they're younger now, that AIDS, AIDS, HIV becomes a part of the journey, you know, the trauma around working the streets. Because back to that other question we just had about people being locked up, Young, the younger uh, women there, they are vicious. They can be very vicious, but because they play that game, they are traumatized, they're brutalized. And uh, I was very blessed that um, Kamala Harris, when she was uh, the DA, mm -hmm. sent me a card saying, go to this fundraiser. And it was a fundraiser for UCSF, uh, the uh, HIV clinic. And I went to this fundraiser and I, I met uh, Dr. Edward Mockfinger who heads the uh, HIV clinic there. And he's an angel. He's just, uh, he, he has, he said he was born to be an HIV doctor. And he was born to work with women, and they're largely African-American women, mm -hmm. and uh, Latino women, you know, who are living with the virus. And he asked me would I be willing to come into his clinics and uh, meet with some of the women, because he said, they're, they're holding these secrets. They're holding the secret that they're infected and you can't get well. You can't live a comfortable life if you are harboring this whole, uh, the, the whole secret, the drama around having HIV. And it's really not that deep, you know, but, but we live in a society that's just in, always ready to somehow either um, traumatize us or, uh, or separate us with, with something like HIV. So I took the challenge. Mm -hmm. I took the challenge, and there were a couple of women he introduced me to uh, who were already working on coming out with their mm -hmm. stories. And I took these women into the Medea Project, and we worked at uh, the same methodology of truth-telling. How do you get around the truth-telling? The same questions. But, we, uh, but my team, we created a series of other questions for women living with HIV. And one of them was very interesting. It was like, how has your erotic life changed? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. knowing, knowing that you have HIV, you know, and uh, a lot of women said, oh, I often wonder uh, how can I say to a man that I have HIV or how, how, finding a lover, how do I find a lover? And I said, let's explore what that is. Because the other side of that is it is very dangerous and violent in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. If you don't uh, find a way to say out loud, well, I have HIV, can you deal with that? You know, right. but the question is, have you been tested? And that's everybody. I tell mm -hmm. every, I tell straight women, I tell, I tell uh, gay women, I tell, I tell uh, trans transgender women, I said, when you're dealing with somebody that you're feeling like that about, ask, mm -hmm. have you been tested? Because mm -hmm. their response will tell you a lot about how far you can go in this relationship. Yeah. I have a, two more questions for you before I let you go. I know you've got a busy, packed week, busy, packed I day. I love talking to you, too. Yeah, this has been fun. Um, 
And it's an important question. I mean, there's a lot of discussion right now around the prison industrial complex, mm-hmm. around racism, um, you know, especially mm. with this movement happening around the black community. Yeah. So I want to ask, you know, in terms of these programs, have they reduced recidivism? We won't know yet. Mm-hmm. We won't know yet. Uh, our children are acting out, you know, um, even though we, we see social media shows us people being killed at the hand of the police, you still have the other side of it where they're talking back, you know, they're, they're struggling, uh, our, our children, I mean. So it's like, uh, um, and the, the police are pulling back too because they, they know that there's always a camera somewhere. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we won't know yet mm-hmm. how, um, what the numbers are, mm-hmm. how, it's, uh, um, how it's changed. But I think it's a. I think we got a long and bloody and sad night before we see day. You know, yeah. which which breaks my heart because I was just going to end with the fact that you know this. You've received lifetime achievement awards. You've been doing this mm-hmm. for decades, and uh, you know as you. What we hope would be that these programs continue to exist and flourish, so that we can support those incarcerated and really empower our communities mm-hmm. to to move forward. What would you like to say to, to that in terms of moving forward? I, I would like to say bravo for a show such as yours. I'd like to say bravo for Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. I'd like to add that women's lives matter. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're, not to say that other people's lives don't matter, but women have got to be brought to the center because we hold up at least half the sky. You know, and uh, that has got to be honored. And, and, and it's happening. It's happening. Uh, I don't mean to be a bearer of bad news, but we have to, everybody's got to work. It isn't, there's nobody that's going to come and change this agenda for us. And then uh, Barack Obama, who was many things, but he was a light, is leaving. And you know where we are now. Yep. And it just means that we've all got to uh, pay attention and be involved. It involves all of us, you know, and if, you see something going down that's not righteous, you've got to be willing to take a stand and say something. And that's everything from uh, children misbehaving on the school bus to the violence in the streets to a woman being attacked, assaulted, to a woman assaulting a man. I just saw a woman beat a poor man down with a bag the other day. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And uh, he's like, help me, lady, help me. I mean, but I stepped in and we all got to laugh about it because it was like, this lady's like, well, who are you? I says, honey. I got eight brothers. I can't just watch you beat dude down. <laughs> he might have done something wrong, but come on now. Yeah. So I think, it's, uh, I think that we're okay because we've stirred up the ether. That's what we're, even our conversation, me being at the Commonwealth Club, is like stirring up the ether. Things have changed. God bless um, oh, Alicia Garza, yep. who I, I got to meet uh, this past winter. And someone said to Ms. Garza, they said, well, wh- what about, um, what about, Self-care. How do you take care of yourself? She said, I'm more interested in collective care. Yes. The group. How do, you know, even you and I, we develop a relationship. I want to be able to say, Michelle, how's it going with you? You mm-hmm. know, are you okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it's like uh, we've got to be willing to step up and say, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Are you all right? Oh, I got you. I got you. I, I got you. You know, it's yeah. like uh, that's how I feel at any rate. You collective know. Care. Collective so, care, yes. Rodessa, thanks so much for being here with me today. And let's let's promise as we move forward that we'll also take a role and play a part in collective care. Yes, we, we're going to do that.
<laughs> We're gonna do that. I love you madly. I know I do. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm the same, obviously. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Don't go away. We'll continue the show, and the second half will be an interview with Ken Jones. His story is being told in the new ABC miniseries, When We Rise, written by Dustin Lance Black. Don't go away. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in, in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that you know we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now and and it's it's a good progression for society it's good that people are, are not just you know tolerating but appreciating diversity and that's the message is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity I think that whoever you are follow your passion follow what you believe in follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Hi, my name is Courtney Ziegler, and I'm the founder of TransHack, which is an organization focused on creating technology for the trans community and visibility for trans technologists and entrepreneurs. Tech is like a new industrial revolution. There's so many opportunities for wealth building and wealth creation. It's perfect for the trans community, which experiences strong amounts of unemployment um, and low wages. TransHack um, provides an opportunity for trans individuals to take advantage of the wealth creation that the tech industry provides. Um, it's a space in which people who are in charge of innovation and development, all these awesome things that we are able to use through technology, are paid really well for that. And so I think that trans people should definitely have their hand in, in that space and creating that. And so TransHack provides that opportunity. I got my first computer when I was 15 years old in the 90s, and it changed my world ever since then. And I went on to become an independent filmmaker who had to uh, not only write direct my own films, but also was kind of doing the technical stuff behind it, which is the editing and the capturing and all those things. I've always had this kind of tech-based background. 
I'm just very curious about a lot of things and just very fascinated about things that I don't know um, and things that can make me a better person. All of that motivates me. I'm just like, what else can I know? What else can I do? What else can I learn? Success to me means a number of things. I think right now in my life personally, it means waking up every day and feeling proud of the work that I'm doing and proud of myself. Just know what you want to get out of any particular industry. Um, it's not an industry that's 100% inclusive in the ways that it should be, in the ways that it's progressing towards. Of all types of people, in, in terms of creating the tech and the industry itself, building its infrastructure. Um, but that's also exciting in the fact that like um, people like me have a lot of room to change a lot of things and a lot of precedent to set. So, um, and that is the, the epitome of success. Spotlight on success and achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Wednesday, this hump day. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our next guest is Ken Jones. He's a civil rights activist uh, who started his activism in the 70s, I should say, and has done a lot of work in the HIV AIDS community, but also for liberation, for gay liberation, I should say. He worked with Harvey Milk uh, and also has done a whole lot. Like I said, his story is actually being told in the ABC miniseries, When We Rise, which is written by Dustin Lance Black. Here's Ken Jones. Ken, thank you so much for joining me. This is such an incredible honor. Well, thank you so much for inviting me down here today to talk about uh, the ABC TV miniseries, mm -hmm. When We Rise, mm -hmm. that is due to drop in February 2017. We're getting close, Michelle. And uh, we're all very, very excited about this opportunity. Right, right. It's such a gift to the LGBTQ community. Um, and I think perfect in terms of timing uh, as far as how much people are consuming our, uh, you know, our history. Uh, and I say our as an LGBTQ. So your story is told through When We Rise. And you're the Ken Jones, who is Harvey Milk's <laughs> friend. And you worked with him in City Hall. You're an activist yourself, um, the first African-American board president of the San Francisco Pride Organization, or I should say at that time, it was the um, uh, San Francisco LGBT uh, Pride Celebration Committee. So uh, Michael K. Williams plays you. How do you feel about that? I mean, Michael K. Williams, he is so gritty and he's raw and he's energetic. And I, I just watched him last night at uh, HBO's the new hit miniseries the night of. Yes. So how do you feel about yes. Michael K. Williams playing he you? He is such an exciting human being with just a huge heart. And Michelle, he really wanted to get this story correct. He put his body through some physical changes you wouldn't believe. He lost 35 pounds uh, portraying me when I was not very uh, healthy. Mm. And uh, he just brings so much passion. He's actually just the perfect person for this role. And uh, I think that what you will see in When We Rise in my story is kind of three themes. And the first, it's a, a short little story. When I was eight years old, I was on the 
field in grammar school playing track and field. I had run the 100-yard dash, and I had won. And one of the losers came over in front of the entire group and said, you know what, Ken? You run just like a girl. And he put up his hands, and he went running like this. This is 1958, Michelle. I was devastated, you know, mm -hmm. devastated mm -hmm. when the world stops, when you see nothing, when you can hear your heart and feel your pulse. And I was never the same child. Mm. I got into the pattern of I wanted to be the best boy in the world so that God would change me. God was an influence in my growing up, and I kept praying, change me. I didn't know anything about preference or orientation, but I knew I was different. And I kept praying that God would change me. And Michelle, God didn't change me. It took me about 50 years to get it so clearly that God created me just like I am. And what God needed from me was for me to rise up, own that difference, step out in that difference to make the world a better place. And not only for those who are with us now, but for all those who are going to walk these paths in the future. I want kids all over America to know that, you know, step out in it, own it. You're different. Mm -hmm. And we hope that the parents get the skills that they need to be able to, to foster these precious lives. So that's a value of me, and I hope it's the contribution I can make in terms of kids addressing the issue of bullying. Well, absolutely. It's uh, the fruits of your labor are showing, you know, today and now. And, and to have a project like When We Rise get funded and and get shown on ABC. I, mean, I know. Who would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought? Did when you think it would happen? Never. When we were little ragtag leftists, that even the gay community would rather us be invisible. Mm -hmm. And that's a part of the story, too. The person playing me as young Ken is Jonathan Majors, mm -hmm. and you're going to hear this name a great, great deal. He's another phenomenal actor. And when he landed the role, he wrote me an email, and he said, Ken, I just Googled you and nothing came up. And I said, well, welcome to my world. I've been invisible for a very long time. And then I said, and I always thought that Meryl Streep would be playing me in the miniseries, but it is what it is. <laughs> I would want Meryl Streep playing me too. <laughs> I love her. Um, so I'm sure the kid was a little bit shocked, but we met a couple of days later up in Vancouver and uh, he's just a phenomenal actor. You're going to be hearing a great deal about him. So we do address the issue of racism in the gay community and the many hundreds of meetings I attended and chaired where I was the only person of color in attendance. I was going to ask you, you know, what was it like being an out gay black activist for LGBT rights in the late 70s? Um, what was that like here in San Francisco even? I wasn't sure what I was doing, but I knew I had this yearning in my heart to respond. I knew that all the images I was seeing of gay people were white men. I even remember my early dealings with uh, the Board of Supervisors in the uh, 
early 80s when they weren't some of the african-american supervisors couldn't believe that i was running around proud he's proud that he's gay do you believe this character what is this and then i had the unfortunate experience along the way of finding myself in conflict with the african-american community about drug use specifically i it landed on my desk that we needed a city-sanctioned needle exchange program. We knew that needle exchange from other countries. We had compelling interest that sharing needles reduce infection of AIDS. We know that. Mm -hmm. And of course, the black community kind of felt like I was uh, condoning drug use in the community, not caring about their youth, and it became seriously competing interests everything that you're saying is correct but we're also talking about lives and we think we know what we can do about saving lives mm -hmm. and before we get too off track but what i brought to that discussion at the time i was president of the board of yes i don't know if you've ever heard of it youth environment studies um, it gave way to what was called the mid-city consortium to combat aids i was the president of the board and we were looking at homeless youth in the hate who had come here as part of the love movement um, and found themselves with no jobs, no family, no home, no structure, no health care, no nothing. And uh, the YES project became a federal demonstration project. We actually got federal money, if you can believe this, to demonstrate that community health outreach workers, people that you pay to go out on the street, to become involved in the lives of these street people. And this was a radically different approach from waiting in your office as a social worker for these clients to come to you. Mm -hmm. It was a totally different experience to become wedded in their lives and to bring up things like, well, maybe we go see a doctor tomorrow, or maybe have you thought of enrolling in this? It was a way of bringing about behavioral change. And I had kind of seen this intravenous drug use virus that was traveling through Miami, New York, LA, so when it came here, I was kind of primed already mm -hmm. to do something. I knew the magnitude of this thing. And uh, again, it was the competing interests. In the early days, we struggled hard, Michelle, with the basic question of, do we scare people to change their behavior, scare mm -hmm. the wits out of them? Mm -hmm. Or do we give them enough accurate information to make decisions? The two camps felt very passionate about both of those. And I think you're going to see that discussion as part of when we rise. And again, mm -hmm. it was about us rising in the midst of what was just absolutely horrible. Right. Everyone around us was sick, dying. I mean, you felt like you needed to do something. No one had the option of sitting this out. Mm -hmm. It was uh, totally devastating for our community. And through that all, Michelle, all the headlines were talking about how white the epidemic was. 
in terms of the, how the media and saw how the, media, the epidemic? How the media saw the epidemic, mm -hmm. which was very interesting to me because I was one of the first volunteers at the Capacity Sarcoma Research and Education mm -hmm. Foundation. I was the first paid volunteer director at the AIDS Foundation. I was the one who thought, well, you know what, rather than it be me against the world, let's form the Third World AIDS Advisory Task Force, and we'll create a body of other stakeholders. So it's not just me, mm -hmm. but I bring the voice of hundreds. Mm -hmm. And uh, we never really changed the perception of the media about who owned this epidemic. Uh, but we've been there from the very beginning. Which has been invisible to a lot <laughs> of people until, yeah, I guess, now that uh, there is a, you know, global interest in LGBTQ rights and our history. I wanted to ask you a question. I thought that it was interesting. And this is part of, you know, the invisibility part, right? Um, when I was reading up about When We Rise and the activists uh, who are involved in the miniseries, um, I was a little surprised that one of Harvey Milk's friends or so someone who worked with Harvey Milk was an African-American gay man. Uh, in my mind, especially in the movie Milk with Sean Penn, most of the characters were white. So what was it like working with Harvey Milk being, you know, I guess, invisible and limited at that time? And there weren't a lot of activists that we know of that we're now reading about who were there this entire time. Michelle, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As an activist, mm -hmm. it is my job to hold legislators like Harvey Milk mm -hmm. accountable. And I took great pride in grabbing his chitakumbumums. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a part of why I was invisible as well. I was so far to the left that it was hard for the gay media to embrace it. The African-American community definitely didn't embrace it. And mainstream media just wouldn't embrace it. What we did have in our favor at the time was a publication. Have you heard of Coming Up? There was a women's newspaper by a uh, owner, Kim Cassaro. Mm -hmm. You can look this up later. Do you know Kim? Yes, through uh, the Bay Times. Through the Bay, that's right. Coming Up later became the Bay Times. Yeah. And she was covering the issues related to women and people of color. And that was also an important coalition that was formed. When we started doing our social change work, both women and people of color found ourselves needing to fight to participate. And somewhere along the line of the fight, we thought, well, you know, we're in this to win it. You're in it to win it. And I think that one of the strongest coalitions that we formed was that of women and people of color in this epidemic. And we were able to, to kind of shape the responses of uh, this city to this crippling epidemic. Mm -hmm. And I... that's when I found and fell in love with Pat Norman. 
who is the first uh, lesbian gay health services coordinator for the city and county of San Francisco. This was a real big to do. And she was an African-American woman. And uh, we were struggling hard at the time. Pat, like Michael K. Williams, is a person of integrity. And when they've made up their mind and their hearts, watch out. <laughs> we will be watching in February when when we rise ABC's new miniseries comes out and uh, again what an honor to have you here I have one last question for yes, you before I let you go uh, you have been involved and had been an activist we were joking right before we started this interview that it's been a span of 40 years even we're now here in 2016 and there is a, a big network that has taken an interest in telling your story. I think one, one, one question I'd like to ask is, do you think we've come a long way? And then, you know, a follow-up to that would be, how do you feel about the progress that we've made? And is it enough? I... Um... I had this conversation not too long ago with someone around race. And they asked, well, in 50 years, surely there's been some progress made, right? And I thought about it and I said, yes, in 50 years, there has been some tremendous progress made. And in 50 years, there have been some issues where there has been no movement. Mm -hmm. um, when I still think of African-Americans and North American society, kids do not have access. Every child born today does not have the same degree of access. And it's a shame and a pity that your zip code can kind of determine your future. Mm -hmm. uh, we, can, we can be a better American, we know it. And we've got to get back to somehow, and again, it's that theme about when we rise, that, um, you know, you can't sit this one out. Uh, 50 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the dream. Well, I'm shaking you right now. The dream has turned into a nightmare. Wake up. Mm. Rise. That's what, when we rise is what, is able to tear down those massive walls of homophobia. When we rise, we're able to tear down those walls of racism, to tear down the walls of hatred when we rise. But we need you to rise. Mm -hmm. We need you to rise. And this nightmare that we're in, it belongs to all of us. None of us has the opportunity to sit it out. It's time to rise. Our future depends on it. And not only for those who are with us now, Michelle, but for all those who are going to walk these paths in the future, we got to rise. Ken, you are such an inspiration to me. And again, what an incredible honor to, to listen to you speak so passionately. I look forward to watching When We Rise and seeing your story be told. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. 
I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the the, uh, the ethics of Oasis. Is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know. You know, it's funny because I still need I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true. You know what I mean? Like I walk in there and. And I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it. I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Our guest today is a uh, is an author and also a writer and also really awesome and really cool um, and who has just written her first youth or young adult uh, novel, I should say, and uh, she's the author of Juliet Takes a Breath. So let's welcome Gabby Rivera to the program. Gabby, thanks so much for being with us. Hello. Thank you for having me. You know what? Give me one second. For some reason, I cannot... I can't hear you, so we're gonna we're just gonna stop right here, and I'm gonna do some uh, fact finding really quick to make sure that uh, I can hear you. One second, okay? Okay. Okay. You good? All right. Gabby, welcome to the program. Hi, thank me. Uh, yeah, we're super excited to be talking to you. It's just because I I just think your work is just so awesome. Um, so. Juliet takes a breath. I mean, the even you know just the first few pages. It's like, boom! <laughs> it's packed. It's packed with a lot of uh, character. The main character, um, in you know referencing Raging Flowers by Harlow Brisbane and this whole power of the, the pussy. <laughs> Talk I mean, to there's us. a lot of power there. <laughs> there is a lot of power there. Talk to us about you know just kind of. I mean, I know that the book references back to Raging Flowers through, throughout the entire book. Um, but, uh, but I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on, on kind of how you wove in the words of Harlow Brisbane into the book. I mean, well, I think that everybody, well, maybe not everybody, but I think that, like, for me, coming to feminism had a lot to do with books, like grand, fantastical books that talked about my power as, like, a woman and as a human being and like my connection to other women in language that I had never heard before or used before. And so for me, it was important to like have that come through um, in Raging Flower uh, to like show how Juliet could be so caught by these words and caught by this notion that like women are powerful beings and that our bodies are powerful and that like we can connect to each other. And so I wove that through the book so that you can also kind of connect 
how she connects, you know, so that you can see the power of Harlow Brisbane, whether she's talking about periods and moon cycles or like touching your body or like loving another woman. Those things are like super strong. And from where Juliet comes from in the Bronx, she doesn't hear a lot of that language and she doesn't hear a lot of that type of conversation. So I felt like it was super powerful, especially since I experienced something like that myself with a book about feminism and bodies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, the book opens up with uh, Juliet planning to come out to her family before moving to Portland or Iowa. <laughs> um, I love that, you know, in, in, in the different, uh, like your your family not knowing where Portland, Oregon is. Um, or, yeah, ever referencing it as some other state and not not giving a crap. <laughs> um you know, but but uh, I really felt for Juliet, like once coming out, you know, the family just kind of being dismissive about it. And, uh, you know, in hearing from other Puerto Rican LGBTQI is the experience, uh, especially, you know, with the with the mom having it the, the worst time or the hardest time with it. Is that, you know, kind of something that's characteristic of uh, Puerto Rican families? I mean, I would never want to speak for all Puerto Rican families, you know. Like, I think when we talk about people of color or Latino communities, we assume or, you know, not that that's what you're trying to do, but we say, we speak of them in a monolithic way as if Mm -hmm. there's one way of being, you know. And so I can only speak from my experience and from what I've heard from other people. But um, I want to be super careful about saying that they're, like, dismissive of her. I think there are different members of the family that react to her um, her grandmother embraces her and says, I love you no matter what. Her aunt is like, okay, lesbian, I'm cool with this, whatever. Like, I support you. And her mom um, has a different reaction, right? Her mom is quiet and upset and is, like, reeling, basically. And so um, I think that's less dismissive and more of an opportunity to show that, like, yes, parents have reactions. Like, when you come out you sometimes like alter this entire perception that a family has that a mom has about you you know Mm -hmm. and in this instance like Juliet's mom totally loves her but just was not expecting this in this moment um and I think that there are varying experiences in like Puerto Rican families Latinx families like I know that for me um my grandma was always accepting of the gays and lesbians um in the family and was accepting of me uh, and protective of us. But then I, and then I have other families that's like super religious and still like, no, we love you. God made you however God made you, mm-hmm. you know? And then, and then I hear of other families that aren't so loving and aren't so accepting, you know? Right, um, right. Definitely, so it, definitely. It, it, it's varied. And especially I think what's interesting is like maybe less of gay or lesbian, but how like gender is perceived in the family, because I know it was harder, I think, when I started presenting more masculine for my mom than when I was more feminine presenting with like feminine presenting girlfriends. Yeah. And so. I think that that's kind of, I guess uh, I had per, uh, personalized my question cause that was very similar to when I came out. Um, and it felt, it felt dismissive for me personally. Uh, so I didn't mean mm-hmm. to, to, to do that with, with your experience for sure. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's funny that you say that when, when you, you know, talk about moms know, um, I mean, did you feel that your, your mom knew before you said it, before you said, you know, I'm a lesbian? (laughs) Oh my God. Like, (laughs) I never knew that my mom knew until like recently because 
I I asked my mom for some guidance on writing that scene. So that was something we did. And she was like, you know, Nana, make sure that she doesn't flip out because remember, I didn't flip out and you don't want her to be that stereotypical Latina mom. You know what I mean? Like, and so we talked a lot about that. And that's like the first time that ever happened in my writing process. And she told me that she knew, Mm -hmm. like, she knew because I had a girlfriend over that I brought as a friend. And my mom said that she knew in the way that I looked at her that <laughs> something was different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's exactly... And like, you knew and you didn't, you didn't yeah. help me? Like, you, you still let me, like, freak out and come out to you? Like, she was like, I didn't know what to do with it, but I saw how you looked at that girl. And oh, my gosh. That is so awesome. Um, yeah, and I totally feel you on you being more male presenting. When I cut my hair, my mom just lost it. I'm Asian, and so um, what I was trying to find was my question was to see, you know, just our experiences can overlap. Um, <laughs> you know, they're not they're not different for um, just the reasons of, of being a different race. But speaking of that, I mean, this is one of the first uh, novels um, attracting, you know, youths, or I should say young adults, uh, that really is uh, so, it's so true to the experience, the lived experience of a queer person of color. Um, and, and not, you know, just sticking with the Hollywood story of gay stories that's, that's happening a lot now. Um, are you very proud of the fact that, you know, this is one of the, uh, it's one of a kind, this book that you've presented to the world? Oh, man, thank you. I mean, I'm super proud and excited that, like, Julia is getting this life outside of my computer and outside of my head. Like, I'm just totally humbled and honored that, like, people feel connected to her and connected to this story and that it is, it seems to resonate, you know, beyond just Puerto Ricans from the Bronx, which is what, I was hoping for, you know, like, I'm so excited. And I just hope that, like, more people come with their stories and that we, like, are allowed to continue, like, not allowed, but that we continue playing with, like, nuance and layers and, like, tell stories that aren't just focused on coming out, that go beyond all of those things and, like, express who we are as, like, you know, just different, like, interesting, geeky, weirdo people, you know? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what's interesting is like, especially right now, it's a, it's you know, election year, and there's so many adults. And what I, you know, my personal feeling or feelings about this is like white conservative adults are talking about queer, weird young people as if they know them or they know what's right for them. And uh, they have, like, no clue, which is why books like yours are so important. I mean, what's been, like, the response from other young queers uh, who's reached out and who's who's read your novel? I mean, I'm getting responses from lots of people. Like, I get responses from, like, young white queers that, like, you know, their hearts are so good. They're like, I know this story wasn't written for me, per se, because I'm white, but, like, I really feel connected to Julia and how she came out and like, thank you so much for writing this. And like, it made me laugh. And so I'm, I'm, and I get the little Brown queers who are like, what? Oh my God. I can't believe this is real. I've never seen myself in a story before ever. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I feel like I can breathe myself. I feel like I can move forward. And then I'm also getting responses, especially from like older LGBTQIA folks, like women, 
who are like specifically women who are like, I wish I had this when I was younger. Like I could have so used this story to help me navigate what I was experiencing because I couldn't find it in like white narratives or like, you know, beyond white narratives, the like sad, the gay person dies kind of stories. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I was referring to earlier. Um, So let's talk about the love part because, you know, I, I never get tired of hearing, you know, about queer people falling in love for the first time. It's like so magical. Um, but, you you know, you moved to Portland, of all places, um, from the Bronx. Uh, my experience is in Portland that it's been pretty white. Um, <laughs> so falling in love in Portland, like, what was that like? Or tell us the story again, which is obviously in this novel that people should read. Oh, wait, like you're asking about me? Well, um, or Juliet. Juliet, yeah, I'm sorry. Now we're talking <laughs> person with the, uh, your book here. I mean, here. it's based on the things I've experienced, but, like, I may have fallen into lust in Portland, but I did not fall in love in Portland. <laughs> like, well, Juliet um, did, the main character in the book. And, Juliet, and a lot of us can, you know, can talk about how we moved and, and uh, that, you know, we've been in love. You know, it's funny that... Um, it's funny that, that that scene or that instance with, like, Kira, the, like, motorcycle-riding librarian, has been, like, perceived by everyone as, like, Juliet, like, falling in love. What do you mean, like, that Juliet falls in love with her? Uh, yeah, or just, uh, you know, there's lots of stories, obviously, of, of, of love or, or, you know, just the coming out process and coming yeah. of age process and relationships and kind of how that, you know, is different, obviously, when you're young and brave no, versus, of course, of like, course. a little older and a lot more experienced. And so I, I always love the stories of, you know, meeting people and uh, trying to figure yourself out. And the person that you end up liking, and this is this is personal for me, you know, I look back, like, when I came out at 19, 13 years ago or something like that, and I would never date the people that I dated <laughs> When I was yeah. that age, now, when I'm 34 now. No, totally. I mean, love is, like, so important, and I wanted to, like, talk about all different kinds of love. I mean, there's that, like, weird, hopeless love that you can't understand. Like, why is Juliet, like, so in love with Lainey? Like, this girl who barely gives her any time, whoever, who doesn't, like, show her that gentleness, that affection. Like, what is that about, you know? And, like... So there's that relationship, and then there's the one with, like, the librarian, and I think that it's, like, that playful kind of love where, like, you don't even maybe necessarily tell the person that you love them, but you know you do in that fun way where, like, it maybe doesn't have to last forever, but but it's important, and it's right now, and it's physical, and it's, like, spiritual, and it's, like, summer love, you know? Summer love can be so much fun, like... (laughs) Where are our queer narratives about summer love? Like, where do you see young brown kids just falling into, like, love like that? You don't. Like, you don't. There's always some kind of, like, consequence to our love where we're pregnant or someone, you know, literally somebody dies. And so, like, I just wanted to give her that opportunity to play, right, and to be courted, you know, and to, like, someone be sweet to her. Like, Jesus, like, when are people just sweet to young Latina girls? You know what I mean? Without Mm -hmm expecting anything in return like yeah I really wanted to like highlight that and then and then in my experience like in navigating different queer worlds like 
the way people love each other with intention um, and with respect and consent, like, I don't think we talk about that enough. And so some of the older... Thanks again for joining me here on this program, the Michelle Miao Show, your A3Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. You can catch everything that we produce when it comes to the LGBTQI community at michellemiao.com. We're here Monday through Friday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network. We'll talk to you soon.